This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Edgar Cruz. Tonight in this special episode, we share the keynote address from the 2020 UNM Black History Month kickoff brunch. The address was given by Roland Martin, creator and host of The Roland Martin Show, a former CNN contributor, Peabody Award recipient, and winner of two NAACP Image Awards. Mr. Martin shares a speech sure to rekindle a fire to set us all on our way to making We the People a reality for all. Listen in as he speaks at the 2020 UNM Black History Month kickoff brunch. All right. Uh, I am uh, certainly glad to be here. Glad to, uh, this is the second time I've been in uh, New Mexico, first time here in Albuquerque. So glad to see uh, all of you here. Um, now before we, uh, so a lot of folks were trying to stop me and take pictures and talk to me, and I was busy, because um, you know, you heard the introduction. Uh, I, um, after TV One ended, uh, show News One Now, uh, I actually launched uh, my own digital platform. And uh, we did that because um, the fact of the matter is, uh, you look at the first black newspaper, the nation's first black newspaper, Freedom's Journal, which was launched in March of 1827. In its lead editorial, they wrote, we wish to plead our own cause. Too long have others spoken for us. And unfortunately, when you look at what is happening in this country, uh, you look at the fact that there are eight black cable networks, eight black cable and broadcast networks, not a single, that do 1,344 hours of content a week and not a single hour dedicated to news. Uh, and if you want to ensure that a group of people uh, do not understand the stakes of what is happening, all you have to do is make sure they have no information. Um, I also spent 11 years on the Tom Jonah Morning Show and uh, on that show, same thing, uh, us providing information, sure, having music, having laughs, jokes along those lines, but using it uh, to also uh, speak to the issues that matter. And of course, Tom retired at the end of December. And so we launched this and it was very interesting because a lot of people said, you know, you know, you know, why are you doing this? Be great if you could go back to CNN or go to MSNBC. Uh, and but but the deal, though, is I wasn't interested in somebody else deciding what the news was. Uh, I wasn't interested in asking them, could I go cover this? Uh, and look, when uh, you know, I started in media when I was 14, I went to Magnus School of Communication. So this is what I've done for nearly my entire life and understanding that. So we created this platform so we don't have to ask somebody else's permission. Uh, in the first year, we launched Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, we did more than 100.7 million views across uh, Facebook, Periscope, YouTube, 345 million minutes of content viewed, uh, grew our YouTube channel by more than 300,000 subscribers. And I have people who come up to me today, people who come up to me all over the country, uh, who say, uh, people actually all over the world who talk about being able to see us, and that's what it means to speak uh, to your own cause. And so, uh, so when y'all saw me, they're like, okay, he's like real busy. I wasn't ignoring people, uh, because again, when you, own, when you own your own stuff, you don't have to ask anybody else's permission. Uh, so I also don't believe in just talking to the room. So I was, I was actually setting up uh, our live stream. So, uh, and then if they miss it, it'll be saved on our YouTube channel and Facebook page so they can see it later. That's important because how we are, what, what we are dealing with in this country when we talk about the difference between his story and history. 
And before I get into my remarks, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about why programs like this, this 50th anniversary, why this, these initiatives are critically important. You heard the history in terms of how they were created. But actually, I'm going to take it back even further. Uh, the reason why these programs were needed is because America, in terms of history, has always been told through a white lens. That's why I use his story instead of history. Uh, you look at all the folks uh, who are losing their minds over the New York Times 1619, the 2019 project, all these folks who are upset. Because if we really want to be honest, there's always a problem in this country when you center blackness and you're not centering whiteness. Now, I'm saying that because, and I'm sure there are some people who are uncomfortable because let's just be real honest, it's hard for people to deal with when you use the phrase centering whiteness because people get all, oh my God, why are you saying that? Because it's also true. <laughs> A few weeks ago, Joe Biden uh, got into lots of trouble when somebody actually, uh, when they edited a video that he gave where they tried to present the video as if he was supporting white supremacy, when in fact, if you saw the full comments, he was actually talking about how this nation, how we view things are done through the lens of a white European lens. That was important because if you, you can't understand how we got to where we are today in 2020 if you don't understand exactly where we came from. You can't understand how in America, for so many centuries, the standard of beauty was a blonde, blue-eyed, white woman. And now all of a sudden, America's having to grapple with the fact that uh, because you now have people of color, black folks, Latinos, and others who are now controlling power and able to tell our own story, we're offering a whole different view. Uh, and so Africana Studies programs are important because they're not here just to serve black people. You don't have to be black to major in Africana studies. They're important because, and every university has to understand that, because any university would want their students to have a well-rounded education. That's a phrase we use and throw around, but do we actually mean that in terms of what we study? I remember, go ahead. I remember when I was at Texas A&M and we were, I was in the English, English class and I was going through all of these different folks who were reading and they, Jack London and Hemingway and we're going through. And finally I had to ask, I said, I, I said, I'm just curious, were there any black people writing in the mid, in the early to mid 20th century, like anybody black? And so I remember reading uh, this, they had, so they had this one story in the book, and um, it was quite interesting. Uh, it was, the story was called Nigger Joe. And I sat there and I said, I'm just letting you know, Roland ain't gonna be reading by Nigger Joe. <laughs> and in fact, we were reading, I remember when we had to read uh, Huck Finn. I, I, I ain't know what Joe was talking about. And I finally raised my hand. I said, I don't mean no disrespect. I don't read slave. And my professor was like really upset. She was really upset. Then she got really upset because then she saw my name because I, see, her husband was also an English professor. Uh, and he and I clashed when I was a freshman. This was my junior year. Uh, and so she's like, oh, oh, my husband told me about you. I'm like, I'm sure he did. 
And then she did something that she shouldn't have done because I guess she thought she was talking to a regular ordinary black student uh, who was scared. She said, well, if you've got a problem with the, uh, the curriculum we're using in this class, you are more than free to go to the head of the English department. I said, cool, what's his office number? And I went to him and we had a conversation about curriculum. And I just simply walked him through a number of other black authors uh, in the 20th century who we probably could include in these books in order to give students a better understanding of English. Then I went back to the class and let her know I went to her boss. <laughs> See, I'm saying all of that is because don't think because I'm now 51, all of a sudden I got bold. No, I was calling teachers out when I was in elementary school, junior high school, high school, college. And many of these folks should be real happy my wife and I have not had children because I would have unleashed them on many a teacher. <laughs> I'm saying that because these programs should be fully supported by all universities. They should not be marginalized. They should not be, they should, they should, they should not be reduced uh, to somehow saying, well, you know, you, you've sort of done enough. And no, no, no. The fact of the matter is, Every student who walks through the doors of this campus should be studying uh, the courses that are being offered because what is required by universities today in the 21st century is to actually right the wrongs of history that have been taught in, at universities since their inception. Right. And so that means provosts and deans and presidents should be fully supportive and should be expanding this, and they should not be looking at the percentage of black students who attend the university or the percentage of black people who live in this city or the percentage of black people who are in this state. What they should be saying is, this is not black history, this is actually American history, so therefore it should be included. I'm not interested in people who solely come to events like this uh, because somehow it is what they are supposed to do, know what I fully expect of folks to come here, not just take a picture or to say I was here, but to literally take what is being said here and then begin to apply it in their daily lives, whether they are university administrators, educators, CEOs, politicians, because I don't believe folks should waste time who show up at Black History Month events, MLK events, use it as a black checkoff event, and not use what is being said and apply it in everyday life. And see, I know that makes some people real uncomfortable, but see, I say this all the time, if you wanted somebody to come here and make you feel comfortable, you could have gladly invited my wife, She's a minister, she's ordained, she got papers, she's could've, she could have prayed with you, she could have laid hands on you. God has given her this wonderful, comforting spirit. But let me be real clear, God has given me a spirit of discomfort. <laughs> I, 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 I was not put on this earth to make folks comfortable. And if you watch me on television, I don't make folks comfortable. When you turn on ABC this week with George Stephanopoulos tomorrow, there are going to be some real uncomfortable people sitting on that set because for me, 
We have too many people who have been comfortable in this country. There are too many folks who are working in universities who have allowed comfort to dictate their policies. And we have had too many people who work in corporate America and far too many politicians uh, who care about the feelings of other people as opposed to how do we redefine the image of what it means to be an American and that image should not be that of a white male or a white female. It should be an image that truly looks at and represents this country. So if this was a book, that was a full word to what I got to talk about. So let me do also do this here. So I always do this. So let me tag my text. Uh, now, there are some people in here, if you have no idea what the phrase tag your text means, it's a good chance you've never been to a black church. <laughs> so I know some of y'all sitting right now real uncomfortable, like what does tag your text mean? So just gently look to the black person to your left or the right. Don't assume they go to church. Ask them, are you a church goer? What does tag your text means? Tag your text means when the pastor normally would title his or her sermon so the people, that way they'll remember what they talked about so they can't remember nothing else. At least they remember what the title of the sermon was. So I'm going to do that. So I shall do this. Uh, so I'll use uh, this. I'll tag it this way. Never stop fighting. All right, all right. If you really are honest and you ask yourself, has there ever been a moment in American history where African-Americans and others were provided rights and guarantees, has it ever occurred in American history where it took place without a fight? And the answer is no. You can walk through American history. You can begin at 1619. You can begin because actually uh, people of African descent were uh, on, the, on this land before 1619. But we use 1619 uh, when 20 odd Africans arrived in Point Comfort. No, they did not arrive in Jamestown. That's also, again, his story. They arrived in Point Comf Comfort, Virginia, which is actually now uh, when you go to Hampton Roads or you go to Norfolk, that's where all the black folks are. Yeah, that's where they actually landed. That's just that's just history, not his story. If you go back to that period, then walk yourself through from 1619 to present day, what you will understand is that we have never gotten what has been duly ours without a fight. From the moment Africans who were enslaved uh, were fighting to get out of those chains, whether you talk about 243 years of slavery that took place in this country, whether you talk about a period of 10 to 12 years of reconstruction, whether you talk about 92 years uh, after the Great Compromise of 1877 with Jim Crow, uh, you can talk about uh, the Civil Rights Act uh, of 1957, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. You can go on and on and on there's been nothing that has been granted to people of African descent in this country that did not come without a fight. 
when you think about Barbara Jordan, when she, of course, uh, with, with the um, Watergate hearings, and of course it was interesting because uh, we have an impeachment hearing uh, that, that is actually taking place, and uh, the folks who are defending Donald Trump, they, gave, they had their two hours today, uh, didn't say much, so trust me, you didn't miss much. <laughs> if you understand when Barbara Jordan, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan of Texas, at the Watergate hearing, she talked about, um, again, she gave that famous speech, and uh, I played it the other day on my show because I wanted people to actually hear her uh, explain, in her own words, the Watergate hearing and explain the history of impeachment. And what's interesting is when you hear her say these words, when she said, earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, we the people. She said, it is a very eloquent beginning, but when the document was completed on the 17th of September, 1787, I was not included in that we the people. She then said, I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. And I have great respect for Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. She's a fellow Houstonian uh, and graduate of Texas Southern University. Uh, but the reality is, is that even though we are in 2020, black folks are still not included in We the People. The reason I say that is because when you look at the Supreme Court deciding the Shelby v. Holder decision, that gutted significant parts of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, what happened soon after? Republican-led legislatures raced to, to put in place uh, a number of voter suppression efforts all across the South and in other parts of the country because they understood the power of the black vote. See, if we were fully included in We the People, first and foremost, there would be no need for the Voting Rights Act. If we were fully included in We the People, there would be no need for them to reauthorize it every 25 years. If we were fully included in We the People, there would not have been a need for a 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, the three Reconstruction Amendments, because if we were truly and fully included in We the People, then we would be granted the exact same rights that a white man is granted the moment they are born. If we were truly included in We the People. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because, and I'm sure somebody's looking at me saying, well, why are you specific uh, to white men? Because if you actually look at the process of how the Constitution was created, please read the book Dark Bargain. You will understand that our Constitution was created largely for white men who own land. That's who they wanted to vote. Talk about the suffrage movement and getting the right to vote. That was also for white women. That was not for black women. Black women that was impacted by the 65 Voting Rights Act. Just like when you talk about affirmative action programs or MWBE programs, they have M for minority, W for women, black enterprise. If you then ask them to unpack, well, who falls in the women category? If you're black, you fall in the black category. If you're a black woman, you're in the black category. Latino woman, you're in the Latino category. You're an Asian woman, you're in the Asian category. So really, W stands should be WW, white women. Don't be mad, I'm just unpacking what's factual. And in fact, if you really even understand that in terms of uh, look at 
how when you, again, when the phrase women's rights, black women were not included in that. Black women were fighting the National Organization for Women when it came to be included in those efforts. In fact, women, white women, should be thanking black folks for that because if it wasn't for a racist congressman from Virginia, Judge Smith, who, who put women into the 64 Civil Rights Act in an effort to actually derail the Civil Rights Act, not realizing he guaranteed its passage, so when you look at that inclusion, women were, women were placed in the 64 Civil Rights Act. They were initially not included in that. So when you fast forward to Title IX, when that was passed uh, in 1972, which did not, was not about sports, was not about letting women play sports, Title IX was opening up the professional schools to women to become doctors and engineers and lawyers who benefited more from that white women in America. If it wasn't for black folks fighting for the 64 Civil Rights Act, there would be no Title IX. If you are disabled, 1996 American Disabilities Act, that is a provision, that act was built upon a provision of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So if you are disabled, you should be thanking black folks because it was the 64 Civil Rights Act that paved the way for the 1996 American Disabilities Act. If you are Latino or if you are Asian and you are actually voting in your native language, thank black folks because Voting Rights Act is what allowed for ballots to be printed in the native language of individuals, not just in English. And in fact, if you look at folks who are, who are gay and who are, who are happy when same-sex marriage was affirmed by the Supreme Court, might want to thank black folks because it was a 14th Amendment, a Reconstruction Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause that formed the basis of the Supreme Court's decision. Why am I saying all of that? Because there are significant Portions of this country, white women, LGBT, Latinos, Asians, all who have benefited because black folks dared to fight this nation to properly affirm we the people. All I'm doing is just walking through history so people understand how we got to this place because I've been in places and I've asked white women, where did Title IX come from? They could not even tell you where it came from. I'm like, you better go to 64 Civil Rights Act. See, we walk around in this country somehow believing that these things just sort of happen, not understanding how were they built, how were they created, uh, and then who were the folks were actually fighting to make these things happen. I'm saying all of that is because we need to understand that we cannot talk about rights if you don't talk about the folks who fought to actually make those rights real. That's why I think we make a huge mistake every single year when we have MLK programs. Because MLK's national birthday is not about celebrating Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, he accepted it on behalf of the entire movement. That day does not represent just him. That day represents all of the people who made it possible for there to be a black freedom movement, which some call the Civil Rights Movement. So you can't just on that day celebrate him and being folks run around and release quotes that he gave. Then you have to also on that day celebrate Septima Clark and Dorothy Cotton and Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and Ralph Abernathy and Hosea Williams and Andrew Young 
and Fred Shuttlesworth. You have, to, you have to celebrate the number of people who you don't even know their names who put their lives on the line in order for us to have these very right. You can't talk about this, the four little girls who were killed in a church in Birmingham at 16th Street Baptist Church if you ignore what happened on the same day a young black boy was riding his bike who was also killed on that very same day when that bombing reverberated all across uh, Birmingham. See, you can't ignore him on that day because he's also a martyr. You can't ignore Medgar Evers. You can't ignore Viola Uzo, a white woman from Michigan uh, who was fighting for folks to get the right to vote, who had her head blown off on the highway coming back from uh, Montgomery after the 7th of Montgomery March. You cannot ignore James Reeb, a white pastor out of uh, New England who was stomped to death there uh, in, uh, after the Selma March. You can't ignore all of that. So we make a mistake when we somehow are limiting this civil rights history in this moment to a central figure as if he represents a civil rights mascot. You can't ignore him. You can't ignore A. Philip Randolph and the Pullman car porters. You can't ignore Denmark Vesey. You can't ignore Nat Turner. You can't ignore Ida B. Wells Barnett. You cannot ignore all of these African-Americans, Martin Delaney and others, George Padmore. You can't ignore William Trotter, who stood to a president who threw him out of the White House because he did not like being questioned by a black reporter. You can't ignore Robert Abbott, who found the Chicago Defender. You cannot ignore any of these figures because you, and you can't even ignore the black folks who were elected to the state legislatures after the Civil War, and they were the ones responsible who put education in the state constitutions. And so when you travel across this country and you see taxpayer finance education, you better thank black folks because they were the ones who made it possible. And then during Jim Crow, when they ran all the black folks out, what did they keep? They kept that law that's in the South, taxpayer-funded education. Don't believe it, just read James D. Anderson's book, Education of Blacks in the South, 1860 to 1935. What I'm unpacking here is that you cannot confront American history and the people who actually forced America to be the country it said it was on paper, as Dr. King and others said, be the country that you said you were on paper. And so it has been African Americans who has forced America to actually understand and respect what we the people is. You're listening to Generation Justice, broadcasting live from the University of New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM-FM. Don't forget, you can live stream us on KUNM.org. Tonight, we bring you journalist, author, and syndicated columnist Roland Martin. Mr. Martin delivered the keynote address at the 2020 UNM Black History Month kickoff brunch. Let's get back into this discussion. See, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because, see, uh, we don't really like to deal with that because now all of a sudden it's, oh, no, you're redefining history. No, I'm not. I'm just choosing to ignore the nonsense that you were told. We live in a nation where they run around and talk about all oh, the, the American Revolution and they pour some tea in the harbor. But they don't want to deal with what, of course, the historian Gerald Horn wrote about when he said, no, it was actually the fact that the 13 colonies were deathly afraid that England was going to outlaw slavery. And if we understand American history, that you do not have capitalism in America if you do not have slavery. Capitalism didn't even exist 
before slavery. They understood that they could not get rid of slavery because that was the economic engine that drove this country. Oh, I ain't talking about just the South because see, all those good white folks who lived in the North, trust me, worked at insurance companies that insured those slaves because the slaves were property. And so when you look at the insurance companies today uh, that are now worth billions of dollars, those insurance companies were built on the blacks of insuring slaves because we were property. Read the book, The Other Half Never Told, then you will understand how slavery was what drove the economy of this country. And so I love it when people talk about, oh, the power, especially when uh, the orange one talks about, oh, the, the power of America. And we love in our history classes, uh, they talk about, oh, just uh, the American, uh, the great industrial uh, revolution. That's what started it all. No, ask how did America get its money before the industrial revolution? Slavery funded that. So I'm unpacking all of this because you cannot confront America unless you confront its real history when it comes to people of African descent and how we not only built this country, sustained this country, yet still are having to fight the forces of evil who want to deny us what it fully means to be we the people. Why am I so critical of the Trump administration? Why am I so critical of the Republican Party today? No, not because I'm a Democrat, because I've never self-identified. No party will ever be able to claim me. But I'm willing to understand what is factual and what is real. And one of the first acts of Donald Trump's administration, the Republicans, is to go to the floors of Congress and repeal uh, a law that Obama put in place that actually was about ending discrimination uh, in the buying of cars. Ask yourself, really? That Republicans, and I remember, I never forget when they were debating Congresswoman Maxine Waters on the floor, uh, and one of them said, can't we just get over this stuff uh, and just make America great again? She said, no, nah, we ain't making a damn thing great again until you stop discrimination. So ask yourself, how can folk who say they want to make America great again, one of the first things they did was get rid of a law that actually uh, caused the federal government to examine those who were discriminating against black folks who buying cars. You can't talk about what's happening in this country if you don't deal with redlining. You can't talk about what's happening in this country when black folks lost 53% of all wealth during the, during the home foreclosure crisis because African Americans were being forced into subprime loans even when they were qualified for regular loans. You gotta ask yourself the question. Not only that, uh, look, you look at the opioid, cri opioid crisis. One of the reasons black folks were not dropping dead early on and white folks were is because white doctors were refusing to prescribe pain medication to black folks because they actually thought we were going to the doctor to get high. So they are prescribing Tylenol to black folks and were giving white folks Oxycontin and other drugs. So only for, for the first time in history, hell, racism helped black people. So I appreciate all those racist white doctors who were not giving black folks Oxycontin and all those opioids uh, because we would have, like, hell, racism saved black folks one time. Wow. So when we hear that phrase, we the people, when we hear people stand up, they talk about the Constitution and, all, and, and the founding fathers and all this sort of stuff, then they get mad when then we say, well, no, they ain't talking about us. 
Because here we are still having to deal with those very things. Here we're having to deal with, uh, right now, a young black boy in, in, a, in, a, in a school uh, in Texas who they're saying, we're gonna not going to let you graduate unless you cut your hair. What the hell does his dreadlocks have to do with him being an A-B student? Now we know of a second young man, and the rules said your hair can't be beyond your ears and also touching your shoulders. This brother has his dreadlocks up, not touching his ears, not touching his shoulders, but he's still suspended. Y'all, that's called whiteness. That's called an attack on black folks for hair. And I know somebody might be saying, yeah, but I mean, but it's a dress code in school. Okay, well, tell me about the black woman in Virginia who was highly, first of all, I'm about to say highly qualified. First of all, let's do me a favor. Anytime for anybody here who's in HR and anybody here who's dealing with diversity, do me a favor. Please don't ever say we're looking for qualified minority candidates. Because first of all, I assume you're looking for qualified people. <laughs> Why in the hell using the qualified qualified? I don't think you're looking for folks uh, who don't have the credentials, but I ain't never seen somebody use the qualified qualified when they're talking about hiring white folks. Just do me a favor, drop the qualified qualified. Just say we are looking for strong minority candidates, or just say we're just looking for some minority candidates. But this black woman applies for a job at the Veterans Administration in Virginia. Goes in, unbelievable, got degrees, all this sort of stuff. The panel agrees that she's a great candidate, yet when she leaves, a white man that goes, yeah, but you know, it's something about, about her hair, the cornrows. She finds out Sue's, uh, they had to pay her more than $70,000 plus the back wages, and then they hired her. You, the taxpayer, got screwed because you actually paid that. Now, now, now think about that. Why aren't folks outraged about that? Taxpayer money having to fund somebody who was a racist. Because somebody didn't like her hair. So what is it? We're told to go to school. We're told to talk a certain way. We're told to get the right degrees. And now you still won't hire somebody because of their hair? Man, come on. But we say we the people. See, we have to confront really what is happening in this country, country because what has happened is we have all felt good and they've all, it was great, you know, like we all get along. We, we sit in the same rooms and everybody, no, you, no, no, stop fronting. Because see, if I really want to challenge folks in this room, not just people who are white or Latino, but also black people, I ask this question, who do you go to lunch with? Who you invite to your house for dinner? How many people who sit across your dinner table don't look like you and come from where you come from? See, we fool ourselves when we talk about how we, we're living in such a diverse and multiracial. No, no, we might go to work, but we don't control who we're sitting around unless we're the person who's hiring. When you look at where we go to church, you look at who we go to lunch with, you look at the, what I call those voluntary situations, that's when you really begin to understand the kind of lives that we actually live. If we are going to truly change this country, it requires us first and foremost to be honest about who we are and how we got here. It must, we must be honest to understand uh, how certain methods were used to keep folks out. They recently uncovered some papers at the University of Texas where they instituted standardized testing and the president of the University of Texas was quoted on record as saying to white 
folks in Houston, don't worry about Brown versus Board of Education. We've already figured a way how to keep them from coming. We are gonna institute standardized testing because we already know they don't perform the same way as whites do on standardized testing. That's how we're gonna keep them out of the University of Texas. That, that was actually said by the president of the university. So then when you start looking at present day and you start looking at numbers today, you got to ask, well, I mean, hold on, how did this happen? See, that's where too many of us don't really want to deal with because we don't want to actually deal with how did we get to this place? You got to ask this question. How, how is it that you go into different communities and we say, oh, yeah, that's a white neighborhood or that's that, oh, that, that, that's, oh, we know this, this the black neighborhood. And then we don't start asking ourselves, well, what are the conditions of the businesses in the streets around here? Because then you don't want to start dealing with the economics of this. Now you got to start asking the question, well, what jobs for African Americans have been frozen out of for all of these places? When you go, you, if you meet Eddie Brown, the brother who has a financial firm in Baltimore, uh, he was one of the, he was the first African American, I believe it was Morgan Stanley, one of the Wall Street firms. 1972. Y'all, I was four when the first African-American working at a Wall Street firm was hired. I attended the event at the Treasury Department. I met the first African-American who ever worked at a bank in Louisiana, and that was in 1968. So you might be looking at me saying, whoa, 68 and 72. What I'm trying to say is that if you go from 1619 to present day, and again, 243 years of slavery, 10, 12 years of Reconstruction, 92 years of Jim Crow, King gets killed on April 4th, 1968. If you use 1970 as the marker, if you will, where African-Americans were technically fully free Americans, that means black people have only been fully free in America technically for 50 years. I'm 52 in November, which means I was born into a country where I was not a fully free American, which means that my 13 nieces and nephews are the first generation of Martins born technically fully free. When you look at it that way, all of a sudden it changes your view because, see, we spend our time saying, why y'all keep bringing up slavery so long ago? No, we don't have to bring up slavery. I can bring up when I was born, when I was born, the Fair Housing Act had only been signed into law uh, six months earlier. And let's be clear, it was only signed into law because King was assassinated because they were actually filibustering that for two years. And LBJ sent a letter to the, to the House Democrats and Republicans saying, let's honor the life and legacy of Dr. King by passing the bill that he fought for and it was signed into law nine days later. Had Dr. King not been assassinated, there would not have been a Fair Housing Act in 1968. And then you say, well, what the Fair Housing Act of 68 got to do with today? Because the black home ownership rate right now in 2020 is at its lowest point since the Fair Housing Act of 1968. That means that the, that the, that the number of black people owning homes today is lower than the number of black people who own homes when it was illegal for us to live in white neighborhoods. When we have these conversations talking about wealth and the average white family, $110,000, average African-American family, $5,000, then nobody wants to deal with it. They say, well, you know, we got income inequality and wealth inequality, and man, how do we get to this place without realizing that in America, 70% of, of wealth really came through uh, folks uh, uh, in terms of what was passed down generationally. Well, if you black and you were overcharged for rent and then you couldn't own homes, and you couldn't work in corporate America and you couldn't work in most places in this country and you got a Ph.D. but you were a janitor, then hell yeah, you got nothing to pass down to the next generation but debt. And here's a prayer or an heirloom from a family. 
And then, of course, people say, well, why do we have to have special programs? Well, we've had special programs for folks who don't look like us. I'm saying all of this because we cannot confront the future if we do not deal with the past in the present. So the reason I say keep fighting is because we right now are 24 years away from America becoming a nation that is majority people of color. By 2043, 53% of this country will be Latino, will be African American, will be Asian. Whites will comprise 47% of this country. And I dare say the reason you are seeing the kind of fervor and the kind of evil that is coming from Donald Trump and his supporters because we have individuals who are scared to death of the train that's coming down the track because they are afraid not just of the demographic changes, as Mitch Landrew said in his book, he said to white America, y'all stop being afraid. They will not do to us what we did to them. See, when, I, when we talk about confronting these hard truths and when I keep saying why we have to keep fighting, what we have to understand is that every generation has to fight a battle that other folk said you don't have to. The parents of the civil rights movement actually did their children a disservice because they said, all you gotta, we fought all the battles for you. All you gotta do is go to school, get a good education, and all will be well, and that is a lie. What has to happen in 2020 is that you need to be telling your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and nephews that there has been no moment in history where you have not had to fight, scrap, and battle for what's right. That is not gonna change in 2020, and it's not gonna change in 2043. Because when you have individuals right now, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, led by the Federalist Society, who are putting largely white men right wing on the federal bench, who between the ages of 35 and 45, they want to control the federal courts for the next 50 years because they know they will not have political power. Now see, we're running around talking about you're running for public office and other folks are running for public office and we're saying we need more African Americans and more Latinos and more Latinas and all this in, in public office. But see, they understand that any law passed can also be invalidated by the courts. And so that's exactly what they're doing. They're going to 70 plus year old judges asking them to retire so they can appoint folks who are 35 to 45. You don't believe me? Pull the video of Mitch McConnell when he was on Sean Handy's show where he said, we are confirming young men and women. He didn't say white. He should have said it because nearly 90% of the federal judges Donald Trump has put forth have been white. One Latinx, no African-Americans, of all the federal judges they've named, 88% have been white men. That is Trump's future. That is the Republican Party's future because that is what they are appealing to. They are appealing and pressing the racial buttons and getting people to react that way because they are afraid of what is happening. When you look at the laws that are being passed, that's what's happening. Just yesterday at the big March for Life rally where there were thousands of people marching down the streets of Washington, D.C. in a March for Life. And Donald Trump is the first president to speak to the March for Life rally. And while I was sitting here watching a video, I had to ask myself the question, what lives are they actually marching for? 
See, I'm not interested in somebody standing before me talking about I'm pro-life if you don't say a damn thing about black women dying when they're having children, if you say nothing about the infant mortality rate, if you say nothing about black women who can't get neonatal care, you can't tell me you marching for life when you are sitting here celebrating a man who wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act has actually saved more lives than anything else. See, what they want to do is limit this whole idea of life and limit it to just when it comes to the issue uh, of abortion, but I say, where are all those people who are marching for life when Rakia Boyd was shot and killed by Dante Servin in Chicago, when Ayanna Jones was shot and killed by a cop in Detroit, uh, when you had, of course, Philando Castile was shot and killed. Please tell me where were those folks when Mike Brown was shot and killed, when brothers were shot and killed in Sacramento, in Charlotte, in Houston, in Mississippi. Are those folks marching for life, standing to say shut down parchment prison as sits on a plantation in Mississippi where 10 inmates have died in the last three weeks. I don't see them marching for those lives. See, at some point, we got to just be real with some people and confront them where they are because we also have got to challenge folks and understand that, yeah, we are going to have to fight for every single thing because they do not want us to be truly included in we the people. Which means that when we leave this program, what it is going to require are for folks to make a personal commitment. As Dr. King said, you're going to have to sign your own Emancipation Proclamation. And ask yourself, how am I going to be a change agent in order to make this a more perfect union, to make we the people real, how am I going to use my power within my fraternity or my sorority or in my social group or my business group or my job at my church in my neighborhood? Or am I going to be like too many other folks who are saying that somebody else's job, they got it. I don't, I've done all I can do. No, I dare say if you're sitting in this room, there's breath in your body. You might have a walker. You might have a cane. You might be in a wheelchair or a motorized scooter. But you still can fight. You still can stand up. You can still push and prod and challenge people. It might be going to the state capitol, city council meeting, county commissioners meeting, school board meeting, but it requires people of conscience to be willing to stand up no matter what your color is, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your sexual orientation is. It is time for this generation to stop sitting on the sidelines and us talking about what the ancestors did. No, what should be happening is when there's a 75th anniversary of this studies program or 100th anniversary program. They should, somebody should stand up here and say what this generation did. Somebody should be celebrating what somebody in this room did. If we come back here and we still are talking about what they did in the 60s and 70s, all you've done is come to this event, have some dry ass steak, have some eggs and some fruit, and have a good time. This event is not a moment for you to take pictures and to feel good. This is an event that should rekindle the fire that's in you and cause you to say, I am going to do what's necessary to change my city, my state, my nation, to change the world. And that means that you're going to have to fight. You might have to fight your family members, your friends, and your family. And if anyone dares to ask why you should fight and what it means, I use you to quote my frat brother, Burton Woodson Tandy, when he said simply, we will fight until hell freezes over and then we will fight on the ice.
Welcome back to Generation Justice. You just heard the end of Roland Martin's keynote address at the 2020 UNM Black History Month kickoff brunch. On tonight's community calendar, two announcements to share with you. The first is Teen Night at Explora. Teen Night will take place on Friday, February 28th. There will be food, games, origami, and door prizes. No tickets required for this event, and it's for ages between 12 and 19. Tomorrow, APS Counseling Services invites students and families to learn more about mental wellness and how it contributes to student success. An afternoon with experts who can answer questions and provide resources around mental health. The Community Health and Wellness Fair will be tomorrow, Monday the 24th, at Bernafacio Professional Development Center on 3315, that's 3315 Louisiana Boulevard here in Albuquerque. Contact Layla at 505-855-9841 for more information. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank our guests, Roland Martin, and thank you to Dr. Charles Becknell and UNM Africana Studies for inviting us into this discussion. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Kateri Zuni and Roberta Rael. And a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org and our podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Konama Health Foundation and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. and our last songs of the night... Uh, include The Greatest by King, and in memory of Nina Simone's birthday, Feeling Good, and It Never Entered My Mind by the Miles Davis Quintet. I'm Edgar Cruz, and coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Hasta mañana, no México. It's a new day, it's a new life.